You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, We've been in this series uh, nine weeks now, and the title is Questions Jesus Asked. And the reason why we're looking at questions Jesus asked is, one, because Jesus is a really good listener. And when he asks questions, he desires a response because it causes us to think. It causes us to look deep into the things of life what our philosophies are, where our theology lies. Jesus was a good listener. Uh, Jesus also asks a lot of questions because he cares about people. Have you ever noticed in conversation that if you're a person that only talks and talks and talks but never asks a question of somebody else, that it's very difficult to get to know who they are. And because he cares about people, he wants to hear what's on their hearts, what they're thinking, and so he asks questions because he cares for people. And then lastly, Jesus asks a lot of good questions because he uses those questions to build others. And Jesus is constantly building men and women. And so as we dive into this last sermon of this series, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Let's pray and then we'll bring our hearts before the Lord and prepare to enter into his word. Father, we thank you for your word, which is right and true, that there is great reward for those who keep it. And yet, Lord, as we'll learn this morning, our reward doesn't come from our own works. It comes from the righteousness of Jesus, a Savior who laid his life down for us so that we could be brought into his family as sons and daughters. Lord, this morning, as we open up your scriptures, would you give us understanding Without you, we can't truly understand your word. We can't know the depth of your love for us. And so, God, we ask that you would meet with us in this place. Lord, we thank you for the church in North County. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that are worshiping you. Would you build them and encourage them? Would you unite us according to your spirit so that we may be lights in a dark world? building others into your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 12. If you're there, give me a big amen. Amen. Here is today's question that we're going to begin with. Jesus asks, what man is there among you that has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. How many of you have sheep? Now let me ask that question again. How many of you have sheep? (laughs) You're like, it's the same question. (laughs) We may not have the animals of sheep, but is that what Jesus is getting at? No, and we're going to see in the context. He's referring to the importance and the value of people, of souls of men and women, of our children, of those who are in our workplaces, of those who are in our families, of those in our neighborhoods. Which one of you on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? And to understand the context of that question, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Matthew writes this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were what? They were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw it, they said to him, meaning Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Right out the gate, we see Jesus is under attack. Jesus is under attack. And I want to ask you the question, and you can respond, uh, why is Jesus under attack? Okay, they don't like him. 
Uh, that's a very good general observation. They don't like him. Why don't they like him? Okay, he threatens their power. What else? He says things they don't like. Come on, we've got to flesh this out. Why is Jesus under attack? taking the power away from them. So Jesus has been displaying true authority. But there's a greater reason. Here, it seems as if the Pharisees are upset with Jesus and his disciples because they're doing what? They're breaking the law. They're breaking Sabbath law. But that's not at the heart of what's going on. Let's unpack the scene a little bit. It's Saturday, the Jewish holy day, the Sabbath. And Jesus and his disciples are going from point A to point B. And as they're going from point A to point B, they're walking through the grain fields of Israel. And if you were outside of Jerusalem, because it was such an agrarian society, fields of wheat, fields of barley, fields were everywhere. And outside of a couple of main roads, you pretty much just had paths through all of these different grain fields. And it's interesting to me that Jesus and his disciples are simply just taking a walk. And yet, who happens to be there? The Pharisees. Are you getting this picture? What are they doing there? They're either following him and or they're like, there he is. Hold on. They're like ducking behind the grain. And they're looking for an opportunity to accuse him. Now, the question is, why is Jesus under attack? He's under attack because he claims to be God. He claims to be the Messiah. He's claimed deity. And they hate him for it. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, here's what we know if you go back and read the Gospel of Matthew. At this point, he's healed a paralytic, he's cast out demons. He's healed lepers. He's given sight to the blind. He's even raised the dead and calmed the wind and the waves. And he has displayed true authority, not humanly speaking, but divinely speaking. He has showed himself to be God in the flesh. And Jesus is under attack because they are threatened by the true authority that he carries. And the Pharisees, most likely breaking their own Sabbath rules that are man-made, have come out to spy on Jesus for the purpose of finding fault with him. It's interesting if you look at Jewish law, there are 39 man-made categories of how to keep the Sabbath. Here they are. We are not going to cover them this morning. But there they are. This is from the Talmud or the Mishnah. Uh, this is what you can find in the Jewish faith today. And there are 39 categories of how you are to keep the Sabbath law. Within these 39 categories, there are 24 chapters on the details of these categories of how you're supposed to keep the Sabbath law. Could you imagine trying to memorize all this? What if in order to get in the door of the mission church, you had to keep 39 categories of Sabbath law and you got quizzed every time you came in the door? There, there'd be no one here, including Pastor David and I, right? How to keep the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel, they did this probably with good intention because we do go back to the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments is what? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. On that day, you or your servants or anyone else in your household shall not do any, shall not do any work. But the heart of the Sabbath, as Mark chapter 2, recording this same occurrence as Matthew 12, Jesus would say, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man made for the Sabbath. The whole purpose of the Sabbath, the whole purpose of God resting on the seventh day. It's not because God got tired and needed to rest. It's because God wants to bless us and he recognizes we need, we need rest. We need a day off from our labors. We need time 
to enjoy his blessings, to refocus our lives on him, to spend time with family, to encourage one another, to be thankful and have gratitude for everything that he's provided. And all of this is found in Jesus. So what in the world has caused the Pharisees to be so angry? Why are they nitpicking at Jesus? Why are they attacking him? Well, according to Sabbath law, because the disciples were picking heads of grain, which they were allowed to do, by the way, it's called gleaning. You can find that in Deuteronomy. They weren't stealing anything. But according to the man-made Sabbath laws, they were guilty of reaping, they were guilty of winnowing, of grinding, and of sifting. Good grief. Now here's something interesting that I want to point out. The disciples are simply just taking a walk with Jesus. And the Pharisees are burdened with 39 categories of Sabbath law in which they have to hide or they have to spy where they have to remember all these things. Who would you rather be with? Not a trick question, is it? I'd rather take a walk with Jesus because then I'm walking with God and there's snacks. <laughs> but when we become legalistic, when it becomes about our work, Here's what happens to us, and here's what happened to the Pharisees, and this is simple human nature. Even as Christians, we fall into this. We are prone to turn from simple faith in God to vain religion. We are just prone to turn from simple faith in God to vain religion. Here's what that looks like. Simple faith in God is this. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace we have been saved. Through faith. It is a gift from God, not by our own works, lest we should boast that we have done this. By grace we have been saved. Which means, what did you do to earn your salvation? Nothing. Because Jesus purchased it for us and then gave it to us as a free gift. And then he invites us for the rest of our life on a what? on a walk with him in which he provides everything that we need. And here's the real picture of what's going on. As Jesus is taking a walk with his disciples and as they're having snacks, they're peeling off these heads of grain and popping the grain in their mouth. What do you think they're doing as they're walking? Having conversation. And they're near to him and he's near to them. And he's speaking to them and asking them questions. And they're speaking back to him and asking him questions. And church family, can I encourage you that this is the desire of God's heart for us. Simple faith, which is taking a walk with Jesus. Reading his word is us hearing his voice. Praying is what? Us speaking back to him. And now we're in conversation together. And along the way, God keeps providing for us. And yes, sometimes the path is really narrow and difficult. And other times, we know exactly where to go. But if we're walking with Jesus, he's the one leading. That's simple faith. So why are we prone to go from simple faith to vain religion? Here's why. Because when I'm exposed for who I really am, which is a sinner... My natural response as a human being in my flesh is to go, but look at all these things I do really well over here. Look at how hard I work. Look at the name I've made for myself. Look at how I've built this business. Look how good my kids are, at least for right now. Look at all of these things because who does it ultimately make feel better when we turn to our own works? Who's it justified? ourselves. And we move from simple faith, which is, Jesus, you've done everything because I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman. You've done everything. 
to vain religion, which is performance-based, merit-based. And it's the heart of what our world beats to. Everything in us, everything in this world wants to judge you by your performance, by your looks, by your success, by what you drive, by where you live. And it's so easy to fall into merit-based or vain religion, trying to work to earn God's favor. Uh, Yesterday, because my two older boys are at the junior high camp, I got some time with my eight-year-old son, which doesn't happen very often. Just just me and him. And uh, he's starting basketball, and so we got a basketball from Big Five Sporting Goods that's just his size, and we took it to a local park And he really wanted to practice his basketball. And so he even brought cones and we set up a little drill. And I'm sitting there with the sermon on my mind going, man, the world is going to judge him by what? His performance. He'll be considered a good player if he scores a lot of points and plays really good defense. He'll be considered a bad player if he doesn't do those things. I was considering as his dad, as much as this is practice for him, it's also what? Practice for me. Because as I run him through drills, as I help him with free throws, as the little basketball knowledge that I have to help him get better, my job is to build his character and remind him that he is loved regardless of how many points he scores or how good his defense is or what other people say about him because I'm his dad. And nothing about his performance is going to change my love for my son. This is what we have in Jesus. This is why that simple faith is so important to find rest in. And I want us to consider something. Right before This chapter begins, the very last three verses. Here is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's on the screens for you, Matthew 11. Let's read this one loud voice together. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we were to go back to those 39 categories of man-made ways of how to keep the Sabbath, that is anything but what? But restful. Anything but light. Anything but easy. And yet it's what we gravitate towards in our human flesh. I have to do more. I have to try harder. If I just put in eight to ten hours more of work this week, then things will get better. If I can just get this next promotion, then I'll be accepted. Or then my family will have the financial level that they need. And we are striving and striving and striving. And Jesus calls us back to simple faith to say, come to me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart, which simply means I'll spend time with you. I'll be patient with you. I won't judge you on your performance. Just be with me. I've given you everything you need. And this is why he goes to the cross. We are prone to turn from simple faith in God to vain religion. And the Pharisees are so caught up in it. Verse 3. But Jesus said to them, meaning to the Pharisees, have you not read? And by the way, anytime Jesus starts with that statement, it's going to insult the Pharisees, isn't it? Uh, They're like the lawyers of the Old Testament. They know the Bible backwards and forwards. And Jesus goes, oh, have you not read the Bible? And what he's getting at is you've missed the heart. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? 
Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man, that's a title Jesus uses for himself, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus does something incredible, something we should take note in. Uh, he is under attack by the religious leaders. They are questioning his rule following. They are questioning if he's law abiding. They are questioning the expectations that they have for him and that what he does is brilliant. He brings them back to where? He brings them back to God's word. Haven't you read in 1 Samuel chapter 21 this story about David? David who, yes, he was a sinful man, but in his righteousness, he's running from King Saul. And instead of trying to take the throne from King Saul, David is waiting on the Lord for the Lord to put him on the throne in his own timing. But in the meantime, Saul's trying to kill him. And David's on the run with some of his young men, this little ragtag group of men who follow him and are loyal to him. And they come to this place called Nob. And in Israel, Nob was where the tabernacle was kept. And there's a priest there. And David comes to the priest and he says, hey, we're exhausted. We haven't had any food for days. Do you have anything that we can eat? And the priest goes, David, the only, the only thing that we have is the showbread. And the showbread sat on a special table inside the tabernacle. There were 12 very large loaves, each one representing the tribes of Israel and how God's presence and God's provision was constantly with his people. And the law said that the only people who could eat that bread were the priests. And Jesus says, have you not read how that bread was given to David and his men? Because they were what? They were hungry. It was the only food available. And they didn't do anything wrong by taking that bread and eating it. And then Jesus takes them to another place and kind of hits them between the eyes with practicality. Or do you not know that on the Sabbath day, the priests who serve in the temple, what do they do? They break the Sabbath. Well, how do they break the Sabbath? Well, in those 39 categories, there's a category on carrying or lifting. And guess what they did on the Sabbath? They had to lift up animals to the altar. And you weren't supposed to slaughter animals on the Sabbath. But the priests had to do double sacrifices on the Sabbath. So they're guilty of slaughtering animals. And it's really hard to have a sacrifice without a, a fire. And there were Sabbath laws that you couldn't kindle a fire. And Jesus goes, men, you've missed the heart of why I've given you my law. It is not to bind you. It is not to put you under such heavy burden that you go, okay, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. How many of you have ever lived your life trying to go that direction? Don't, 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 don't. And you end up, ah. <laughs> Paul would say in Romans 7, the very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. The thing I want to do, I don't end up doing. And it's exhausting. And Jesus wants to bring his disciples and the Pharisees to a certain understanding. And here's what I love. The Pharisees have accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath, right? We go back to verse 2 and it says, look, your disciples, there's the finger pointing, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And did you notice that Jesus doesn't even address the fact that they're eating snacks from the heads of grain? Did you notice that he doesn't try to justify his disciples by saying, well, technically this isn't winnowing. Technically, this isn't harvesting. Technically, this isn't grinding. It's not what he does, and here's why. Because when you walk with Jesus and he's your covering, you don't have to defend yourself. Because he defends you. He clothes you in his righteousness. It's his goodness 
that fights for you. It's his righteousness that makes us saved. And instead of us having to prove ourselves or to work ourselves to death, trying to be better, we can simply be close to Jesus. And he just puts his arms over us and around us and says, I've got you. I have you covered. Everything that you need is in me. Jesus has made some bold claims in what he has said to the Pharisees. Something that would have caused them to be livid. The first thing he says is that one is here that is greater than what? Than the temple. You imagine these religious leaders must have been losing their minds. Back in that day, they would actually swear by the temple. We have things in our culture that we swear by. For the Jews, they would actually swear by the temple. And if you broke that oath, if you broke that promise, ooh, you were in for it. And Jesus goes, you guys are so worried about the letter of the law, your legalistic views, the temple, that one is greater than the temple. God in the flesh with you. The whole purpose of the temple was that the presence of God would dwell there with the people so they could come and worship. And now who's standing in front of the Pharisees? God in the flesh. And you didn't have to be the high priest once a year to get into the most holy place to be in the presence of God. Right there in the grain field. And they don't see it. Because their view is so myopic. It's so turned inward about them justifying themselves that they can't see the righteous covering in front of them of Jesus. Jesus also makes another claim that he is God in verse 8 when he says, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Wow. That must have caused them tremendous grief. Did he just say, He's better than the Sabbath? And the answer is, no, Jesus is the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment. We don't find rest in doing good works of, okay, look at my checklist. Look at everything I did. I was really holy today. Now I can rest because you'll never get there. I um, was talking to some young adults when we were doing a hike together in Big Bear. And we were talking about humility and how God loves to humble us because I'm in constant need of being humbled. And I was thinking about how arrogant am I when I make a mistake and I get mad at myself? Think about this. I'm a human being. I have a sinful nature and a flesh. And when I make a mistake, I'm kicking myself and being like, I can't believe I made a mistake. What an arrogant position. Of course I'm going to make mistakes. Of course I'm going to sin. Now that doesn't give me a license to sin. But who do I think I am? That I won't make mistakes? That I won't sin? I'm just a man. And when we consider, could we ever uphold the law? Could we ever execute what God's commands give us to us perfectly? Absolutely not. The law is there to reveal my sin so that I go, oh, I'm in desperate need for a savior. The Pharisees have missed this. We're prone to go to vain religion, to try to live a life based on merit in our marriage, in our parenting, in our workplace, in our faith. And Jesus is revealing who he is. He is the Sabbath rest. He is greater than the temple. And in verse 9, I love what Jesus does. Keep in mind, the Pharisees' heads are swimming right now. He's just right in front of them said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath rest. I'm greater than the temple. And you would think that maybe at this point, with them being so angry, that Jesus would go a different direction. Look at verse 9. Now when he, Jesus, had departed from there, he, Jesus, went where? <laughs> They're mad at him for breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus apparently was just on his way to where? Church. Wow. 
Talk about feeling like boneheads. Here's the equivalent. You're getting ready to go to church. You're walking down the sidewalk because there was no parking in this parking lot. So you had to park somewhere over there. And someone passes by you. And in your brain, you go, can't believe that guy not going to church, going in the other direction. Who knows what his life is probably like. He's probably off to go, I don't know, eat jack-in-a-box and watch football like a heathen. And as you're coming out of first service, guess who's coming into second service? And you found out that guy was just out for a jog, and now you feel really bad. Here they are accusing Jesus with the law. And him and his disciples are on their way to where on the Sabbath? To the synagogue. To worship. And behold, verse 10. There was a man who had a withered hand or a crippled arm. And they asked him, meaning the Pharisees asked Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Oh, man. Jesus comes to church. He goes to the synagogue. And there in the synagogue, I'm sure a man who regularly attends, he has a handicap. He has an arm that does not function properly. It's evidently withered, meaning you can see that it's not either fully developed or that it doesn't work. And we notice something about the Pharisees. The religious leaders were working, were so busy working to be righteous, they did not love people. They were so busy working to be righteous, they did not love people. And they take this man who has this handicap, and they exploit him. They don't care about him. What are they using him for? To try to trap Jesus. Because guess what? There's this whole other category about keeping the Sabbath of what you can and can't do for other people. Guys, this is wild. In my study, I was blown away. Uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent, and then I'm going to bring us back. You ready? During the intertestinal period between Malachi and Matthew, how many of you have heard of the Maccabees and the Maccabean revolt? Um, The Jews were under attack from the Romans, and they hole up in this place, and they're trying to fight off the Romans, and they're very bold. Um, They fight hard, but here's something that happens. The Romans learn that the Jews aren't supposed to do anything when? On the Sabbath. And these Jews take that so seriously. They're so weighed down by their Sabbath laws that at one point, Rome issues an attack and they literally slaughter a thousand Jews in one day because they won't respond. They won't lift a sword. And they've missed the forest through the trees. Do you know that today in modern day Judaism, it is acceptable to help someone if their life is in danger But you cannot help someone whose life is not in danger or it's better to ask a Gentile to help somebody so that you're not breaking Sabbath law. They would go so far as to say, if there is a mortal wound, you may bandage it to save their life, but you may not do anything else to improve their life until the next day when it's no longer the Sabbath. Now, this is not to shame Jewish people. But this is to paint a demonstrative view of what we often do in our own life. They were so busy trying to be righteous that they did not love people. Um, I know I keep coming back to parental examples and it's just where I am in my life. But as a dad, I want to raise strong men. All the men go, ugh. (laughs) This is is good. This is good. We want to raise strong men. We don't want to have babies or weaklings. We want to raise men who know how to stand, how to be tough, how to face opposition. But if I become legalistic about that and one of my boys hurts himself, and maybe it's not something that I think is significant, but he's crying anyways. Oh, as a dad, I do a tremendous disservice to smack my kid on the shoulder. Toughen up. Stop crying. What's wrong with you? Trying to build a man out of you. Well, 
In my legalism of trying to build a man, I've forgotten how to do what? Love my own son. And I know this. I'm really thankful that Jesus doesn't treat me that way. What's wrong with you? You sinned again? I can't believe you. You're pathetic. Is that going to build a man or tear a man down? Wow. And the Pharisees are tearing people down even though they think they're doing what's right. And it's so good for us to look in our own life. Are we trying to be so righteous that we've forgotten how to love people? I know that in our culture, there's some wisdom in how we work with our homeless community. And I know myself included, some of us have kind of these unwritten rules of like, hey, I don't, I don't give cash to people, but maybe I'll purchase somebody food. Okay, there's, there's good wisdom in these things. But what if we become so rigid that someone comes up to us and they appear to be on the street and maybe they have signs of being addicted to something and they ask for cash? Do we simply just go, no, I don't give money to people? And then justify our position by going, oh, I'm not going to feed their addiction. Or are we willing to say, hey, you know what? I actually don't give cash to somebody, but would you like a burrito? Can I buy you some peanut butter, jelly, and bread? Would you like to sit together for a little bit? Is there a way that I can pray for you? So that instead of trying to be righteous and going through a checklist and all these burdens of having to do the right thing, do you know what allows us to do the right thing? When we what? When we love others. Because this is what Christ has done for us. I'm so thankful that when he knew me as a sinner, he didn't disqualify me, but instead brought me near. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Christ died for you. The religious leaders were so busy working to be righteous. They did not love people. Jesus is faced with this trap. Will he heal him on the Sabbath? Is this arm a life or death situation? It's not. But that's a man-made law. And Jesus is all about loving people. Look at his response in verse 11. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. I want you to know something. In Jesus, we are made perfectly righteous. And this enables us to love others. In Jesus, we are made perfectly righteous. It's his free gift of salvation. It's his perfection. It's his work on the cross that satisfied the wrath of God against sin. It's his resurrection from the dead in which we can now be given new life. We are made righteous in Jesus, which enables us now to love others just like he loved others. The Pharisees are trying to trap him according to man-made laws, missing the heart of God completely. And Jesus says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. If you love others, now you're living according to my ways. We are equipped to love others because Jesus first loved us. Uh, spending time with Jesus, he begins to rub off on us. I was thinking about this basketball stuff for my son, and <clears throat> here's what I love about Jesus. Is Jesus chose us to be on his team. Why? Because you did really good at tryouts? 
No, because he loved you. Literally, because he loved you, it brought him good pleasure to put you on his team. And when you become part of Jesus's team, what does he give you to wear? (laughs) We're speaking in hyperbole, but come on, come with me. He gives you a jersey. It's his jersey. It's his righteousness. It's his ways. It's his kindness. It's his love. It's his mercy. And the reason why we can wear it is because we've received it. We know what it's like to be forgiven much so that then we can forgive much. We know what it's like to be healed spiritually and many of us physically. Therefore, we desire that and seek that for others. We know what it's like to feel unloved and unwanted and to be reminded by God's word of how much he wants us and how much he loves us and how much he values us. And Jesus gives us that jersey to wear and then he doesn't just give us the jersey to wear, then he coaches us. And he coaches us to be amazing players on his team. This is not a trick question. How many of you would like to be better looking? If you don't raise your hand, you're like, I'm amazing. (laughs) How many of you would like to be more wise? How many of you would love to know how to respond in all difficult circumstances? All of us would. And guess what Jesus is doing with his disciples? Wow. He's making them better looking. So that as the world looks at these men, oh, they see Jesus. They see someone who loves. As they look at these men, Jesus is teaching them to be wise. Because this is intimidating. The religious leaders of Jesus' day is accusing them of breaking the law. That was a big deal. They could be shamed. And Jesus says it's nonsense. Because when he sums up the law and the prophets, when he's asked, teacher, What is the greatest commandment? Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is equally as important. To do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do these things, you what? You fulfill God's law. Wow. One of these, love others, is a light and easy burden. The other, follow all these laws is an untruth of how we come to Christ, of how we're saved, of how we're lifted up. So the question becomes this. If I love others, are God's laws still needed? Think about it. If I love others, are God's laws still needed? How many of you say yes? How many of you say no? 70% of you don't vote. It's a good question. If I love others, are God's laws still needed? Uh, We need God's law still. And here's why we need God's law. We need God's law to know what real love is. Because the world wants to define love in all kinds of different ways, doesn't it? Well, love is tolerance. Let everyone love the way that they want to. It becomes relative. Uh, Love is love. What does that mean? It does, thank you, whoever said nothing. It doesn't mean anything. We need God's law to know what real love is. Which means when we look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, when he laid his life down for us, we understand what real love is. It's selfless. It abides in God's word. It expects nothing back. So that then we can have understanding of what real love is. And secondly, what real love does. Real love builds people. Real love speaks hard things for the purpose of warning others. Real love isn't just pleasing people or appeasing people. Real love has truth behind it. Coupled with compassion. And without God's law, we would not know these things. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, I have it on your screens. Let's read this together. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. 
And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We know love because of God's law, because of God's word. He has displayed his love to us. So now instead of the law, God's commands becoming burdensome, we see that it's there to bless us, like the Sabbath. The Sabbath was there to give us rest from our work. The Sabbath was there to re-energize us in our walk with Jesus and with one another as family and as friends. The Sabbath was there to give our body rest from the hard labor that it does throughout the week. And if this is true, now I can delight in God's law. And I delight in God's law because it instructs me in the path of righteousness. Have you ever considered this? Before you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you didn't know how to do what was right. I'm not talking about, oh, well, I knew not to murder. Okay, good. That's moral law. I mean, you didn't know how to walk in a relationship with the living God who would lead you to loving others instead of trying to earn favor by your own merit or performance. I delight in God's law because it instructs me in the path of righteousness and I see it clearly. It instructs me in righteousness, not it gets me to righteousness. Do you see the difference? For the follower of Jesus, it instructs us in the way that we should go. It shows us the value of God's ways. But we're already saved. Now I get to live out my salvation. Versus under the weight of the law or trying to be good enough or to perform or to have merit. The Pharisees were trying to use it in order to get people or to get themselves to salvation. Which could never happen by following the law. Only by following the fulfillment of the law who is Jesus Christ. I delight in God's law because it builds me into a man or woman of wisdom. It's not that I'm so smart because I have theological knowledge. It means that when somebody comes to me and goes, hey, Pastor JC, my wife and I are having this trouble. Do you know where I get to take them? Not to 17 ways that JC is going to help you have a better marriage. Don't pay attention to that. But if I take them to God's word, if I give them principles and understanding of the roles and responsibilities of a husband and a wife and husband, just as Christ has laid down his life for you, you're to lay your life down for your wife and wife. You're called to respect your husband and respecting your husband doesn't mean saluting and yes, sir, and becoming a doormat. Respecting means being faithful to him. Respecting means when you're with your girlfriends and they're all bashing their husbands, guess what you don't do? Instead, you hold your husband's arms up. This is wisdom. And it comes from God's word. I can delight in God's law because it builds me into a man of wisdom. And finally, I delight in God's law because in keeping it, there is great reward. We need God's law. And when we walk in his ways, when we walk in obedience to him, I get to see my life transform. I get to see the lives of others transform. I get to watch God pour out his blessings on his church. And there is great reward for my soul. And none of it points back to me. It all points me where? Right back to Jesus and the work that he has done and that he is doing. I can delight in God's law. Therefore, Jesus asks this question. What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? The answer is, to the Pharisees even. Well, of course, if a sheep fell in a well, if it fell in a pit, even on the Sabbath, they'd pull it out. And then Jesus says, and how much more is a man of more value than a sheep? And here's what I want to close with, with this question. As Jesus loves you, let us love one another and fulfill God's law. 
You want to know if you're walking in God's ways? Look at the relationships that you have with those that God has placed in your life. Are you loving them well? Are you building them? Do you have compassion for them? Are you encouraging them? Are you praying for them? Are you loving them well? Just as Jesus loves you, let us love one another and fulfill God's law. Look at Romans chapter 13 with me on your screens. Owe no one anything except what? To love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 10, pay careful attention to. Love does what? No harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I much rather live my life focusing on loving others well than trying to memorize 613 laws that I'll never live up to anyways. And when I fall short of loving others, because the truth is, do I really love my neighbor as myself? Maybe in moments, but most of the time, no, I don't. And anyone who says otherwise, I'd love to meet you. And who covers me? Jesus. Wow. I'm free just to love as he loves me. And when I fall short, which will be all the time, I have an incredible covering of Jesus' righteousness because he first loved me. Amazing. We're going to look at one other question. I know all my guys in the back who just uh, got ready for communion are like, oh, that's okay. This is a short one. We're going to hit this one quick. Turn to Matthew chapter 24 with me. Matthew chapter 24. As you're turning there, uh, we do have the communion table set today and so looking forward to taking the bread and the juice in remembrance of what Christ has done, very much what we're talking about this morning and his love for us. Matthew chapter 24. Here's the context. Jesus is towards the end of his life. Israel as a whole has just rejected Jesus as their savior. And Jesus is hurting. His heart is ailing. He's in sorrow for his own people whom he was sent to rescue who have rejected him. And his disciples are trying to cheer him up. He's in Jerusalem, and here's what chapter 24, verse 1 says. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. Meaning, there's Jesus. He's hurting because his people have rejected him. They're now blinded to the fact that he's the Messiah. The good news is, is after his death and resurrection, the word's going to go out to the Gentiles. And the Gentile world is going to respond to him. But he's sorrowing for Israel. He's sorrowing for his own people. And the disciples trying to cheer him up, they're coming out of the temple and are like, Jesus, I mean, have you seen the new center screen that the temple got? That's pretty impressive, right? And here's what they were doing. Um, They're looking at this grand temple that Herod built. We have a little slide here. This is just a rendering, a small rendering. This isn't an actual picture of the temple 2,000 years ago. Um, Herod the Great built this temple. He began rebuilding it in 19 BC, and it took until 63 AD, almost 80 years, to bring to its full opulence. And it was incredible. It was 500 yards long. That's five football fields long, four football fields wide, most of it on the outside covered with gold plating. And the parts that weren't covered with gold plating was all white marble hewn from quarries. And these stones were 50 feet long, 24 feet wide, and 16 feet thick. It was incredible. Visitors would come from thousands of miles away just to gaze on the temple. And from a distance, 
It would blind you because of the gold and the sun reflecting off the gold, or it would look like the temple was covered in snow because the marble was so white. It was an incredible display of man-made beauty. And the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, I mean, at least we've got this beautiful temple, right? That's pretty impressive. And I want you to know something. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Meaning all these buildings, this temple? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, in the greater context of what Jesus is going to get into, he's talking about end times. What's going to happen in AD 70 when the temple is torn down? I want to look at an ancillary point in these first two verses. It's not the primary thrust of all of Matthew 24, but pay attention in these first two verses. Jesus, or the kingdom of God, where we live in relationship with Jesus, is about building people. You know what Jesus isn't concerned with? Buildings. Now, it's not wrong to have a building. There's nothing wrong with the temple. But Jesus is calling his people, the kingdom of God, to build others, to build people. And this is so important for us. Look back at Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. Listen to this cry of Jesus. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus isn't so interested in buildings. He's interested in building people. When he asks this question, do you see all these things? Yes, of course, he sees the temple. He sees its opulence. He sees its wealth. But he wants his disciples to see something so much more important. He wants his disciples to see the value of building others. And here's what's true. We build people when we serve without expecting something in return. We build people when we speak truth, but we do it in love and compassion. We build people when we teach God's word, not just in inductive Bible studies, but when we take the application of God's word and put it into real life circumstances so that others can understand, not shaming them, but for the purpose of revealing what is good and lovely and right and pure and true. Imagine how rich and rewarding our lives would be if we loved and built people just as Jesus did. Church family, I want to encourage you. Pastor David and I see so much of this going on. Many of you as parents are the primary disciplers of your kids. Way to go. Husbands, we're watching many of you build your wives, washing her in the water of the word. Way to go. Women, we're watching you disciple other women whether it be through women's ministry or you have your own little home groups or coffee studies that you do, way to go. Young adults, man, I watch you guys week in and week out just pour into each other. Way to go. Imagine how rich and rewarding our lives would be if we loved and built people. This is what Jesus is most concerned about. This is what he calls us to. I'll ask the men who are serving communion to grab the trays and to line up ready to serve. I encourage you this week, reflect on those two questions. Are you loving people well? Are you building people well? And if you are, way to go and keep going. And if you're not, know this. God's not here to shame you because he already loves you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you already have his jersey. 
He desires to coach you, to turn you into an amazing player, to build you into a lover of people. This is what he's called you to. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.